Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning. Welcome to Teddy Talks for Friday, April 17th, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and future home of the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. It's a beautiful spring day here in Medora. I hope you have a wonderful Friday. And I'd like to take you through a little walk through uh, some Teddy Roosevelt and American history for this day. On this date in 1524, the Italian explorer, uh, exploring on behalf of Francis I, the King of France, Giovanni Verrazzano, uh, discovered, uh, we use the phrase rather loosely these days, uh, he was the first European representative to uh, come to New York Harbor, both lower and upper New York Harbor, uh, explored up into the waters of uh, what would eventually be called Hudson, the Hudson River, uh, uh, later explorer Henry Hudson to come after uh, Verrazano. Today, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge connects the southwest side of Brooklyn uh, to the eastern side of Staten Island. Uh, that uh, bridge over two miles long, over two and a quarter miles long, uh, is the longest suspension bridge in the Western Hemisphere, named for Giovanni Verrazzano. Uh, on this date in 1790, the death of Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, uh, inventor, ambassador, writer, uh, of course, uh, vital to the efforts in Philadelphia at the time of the revolution and at the founding of our republic via the constitution, and of course, uh, gives us what we still have today, Poor Richard's Almanac, a compendium of insights uh, uh, produced annually. 1837 on this date, the birth of J.P. Morgan Sr., John Pierpont Morgan, uh, American financier and banker. Uh, think of uh, General Electric, uh, the uh, United States Steel Company, AT&T. Uh, he was born in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, uh, and uh, died in 1913. To give you a sense of the uh, breadth and scope of the influence of J.P. Morgan at the time that Theodore Roosevelt was becoming president of the United States, uh, on March 2nd, 1901, Morgan formed United States Steel. 
and uh, that was by financing the merger of Andrew Carnegie's Carnegie Steel Company uh, with the uh, uh, Mr. Gray's Federal Steel Company and Mr. Moore's National Steel Company. $492 million uh, merger. That'd be $15 billion and more today. And that made Andrew Carnegie the wealthiest man in the United States. And of course, the uh, Carnegie uh, Foundation, uh, the building of the Carnegie Libraries, uh, the uh, uh, the peace uh, efforts of uh, Andrew Carnegie uh, became uh, quite a benefactor and sort of a model for uh, today's uh, uh, multi-billionaires that are looking for ways to uh, distribute and invest their wealth in such a way as to make the world a better place. On this date in uh, 1870, uh, the birth of Ray Stannard Baker, uh, one of the uh, American journalists, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner in 1940. He was born on this date in Lansing, Michigan. He was a friend and confidant of President Theodore Roosevelt, often a uh, informal guest at the White House. Uh, one of the men uh, about whom Theodore Roosevelt was speaking when he was speaking of the muckraking press, at least uh, according to uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin in her wonderful book, uh, the Bully Pulpit, uh, the uh, subtitled Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of American Journalism. She writes that book through the lens of S.S. McClure's magazine, uh, of which Ray Stannard Baker was one of the journalists in the stable. And so uh, uh, the birth of Ray Stannard Baker on this date. In 1905, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, judges that the maximum workday was unconstitutional, did so in the case of Lochner v. New York, and declared that there was a right to free contract implicit in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. The uh, positions taken by the United States Supreme Court during Theodore Roosevelt's presidency, including this, and uh, a court on to which he was able to appoint three justices uh, during his uh, presidency, uh, it was that same court that... Uh, I believe it was the year earlier in 1904 that they decided uh, the case in the Northern Securities Antitrust case, really the first uh, high-level successful prosecution uh, of a corporation, uh, of a trust under the Sherman Antitrust Laws. And that was a combination of J.P. Morgan, Mr. Hill at the Great Northern, Mr. Harriman, and uh, J.P. Morgan uh, uh, came down to the White House and, and protesting the action the next day after the announcement of the uh, suit in 1902 told President Roosevelt, why didn't you just send your man up to see my man to patch these things up? And President Roosevelt was reported to say that was exactly what I did not intend to do. I think they wanted to send a message to J.P. Morgan and his uh, Wall Street colleagues that the government of the United States was run and financed by the government. The reality was that J.P. Morgan came to the rescue of the United States uh, Treasury on more than one occasion and would do so again, at least stemming the uh, run on Wall Street in 1907. On this date in 1915, part of my uh, uh, hypothesis that the aughts and the teens were full of young people that were instilled with an American ethic on which uh, Theodore Roosevelt had a significant impact. On this date in 1915, the birth of Joe Foss in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Joe Foss would go on to be an American fighter ace in World War II, uh, won the Medal of Honor in 1943, would go on to a life of public service, uh, largely in Arizona, one of the first commissioners of the AFL, the American Football League, 
Uh, and uh, it was Joe Foss who helped to found a, uh, an institute uh, carrying his name, the Joe Foss Institute, one of these many organizations that combines the experience and wisdom of our veterans community and then uh, attempts to work with young people and youth throughout the country. Uh, just to show you how far we have come and uh, how late in our developing history progress uh, uh, is sometimes made, on this date, April 17th in 1932, the Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia ended slavery by fiat, by uh, uh, command of his uh, position as Emperor of Ethiopia. This is the same Haile Selassie that uh, uh, would have been uh, uh, promoting uh, the uh, uh, the coming together of the uh, the uh, uh, the world after World War One. Uh, he strode greatly on the stage. April 17th uh, in history uh, as well. I thought I might, uh, in addition to what uh, was planned with regards to a message to the uh, uh, Tulsa uh, Commerce uh, Club, that the, the Commercial Club of uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, at the White House in 1908 on this date. Uh, inspired by Verrazano, I uh, recall that Theodore Roosevelt uh, published his own History of New York amongst the uh, the collected writings of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, 30 books or more, and other compendiums. He also published in 1891, New York. Uh, it's a history of New York City. Uh, it is uh, something that he wrote with a bit of frustration, for he felt that the limitation on length uh, precluded him from getting into some of the um, solutions for the social and political problems that were uh, manifest and uh, all throughout New York City in Theodore Roosevelt's day, a uh, an observation of which and a sense of duty uh, compelled him to accept the position of police commissioner uh, in 1896, I believe, after the 1895 uh, elections. But I thought uh, we'd have then a little sampling for this Friday, a little Friday sampler of Theodore Roosevelt, starting with uh, the... Uh, uh, the first chapter, uh, Discovery and First Settlement, though not naming Verrazano, alludes to uh, those prior to uh, uh, Henry Hudson. But uh, as a good Dutchman, uh, I think Theodore Roosevelt enjoys starting off with Henry Hudson. Discovery and First Settlement, 1609 to 1626. Early in September 1609, the ship Half Moon restlessly skirting the American coast in the vain quest for a straight or other water route leading to India, came to the mouth of a great lonely river, flowing silently out from the heart of the unknown continent. The Half Moon was a small, clumsy, high-pooped yacht manned by a score of Dutch and English sea dogs and commanded by an English adventurer then in Dutch pay known to his employers as Hendrick Hudson. He, his craft, and his crew were all typical of the age, an age fertile in adventure-loving explorers, eager to sail under any flag that promised glory and profit, at no matter what cost of hardship and danger, an age fertile also beyond measure in hardy seamen of whom the hardiest and bravest came from England and the Netherlands. It was a period when the greatest deeds were done on the ocean by these rough heroes of cutlass and compass. 
they won honor by exploring unknown seas and taking possession of and subjugating unknown lands, no less than by their prowess in the grim water fights which have made their names immortal. Their small ships dared the dangers of the most distant oceans and shattered the sea might of every rival naval power, and they themselves led lives of stormy peril and strong pleasure and looked forward unmoved to inevitable death in some one of their country countless contests with man or with the elements. For a century and a quarter, Spain and Portugal had not only taken the lead in, but had almost monopolized all ocean exploration and transoceanic settlement and conquest, while the most daring navigators to, were to be found in their ranks or among the Italians who served both them and their rivals. Even at the beginning of the 17th century, they were still the only peoples who had permanently occupied any portion of the New World, and their vast possessions included all of the tropical, subtropical, and South Temperate America. But by this time, in a hundred fights, the sea beggars and sea rovers of Holland and England had destroyed the cumbrous navies of the Spanish king, and one from those who fought for his flag the mastery of the ocean. Spain was still a great power, but it was a power whose might was waning. From the time when the races of Middle and Northern Europe first planted their standards in the New World, they have stood toward the Spaniards and Spanish Americans as aggressors. Their blows had to be parried and returned. Sometimes they have been returned with good effect, but as a whole, the Spanish people have always been on the defensive, fearing, not threatening conquest. I, I think we'll take a, a, a break there. It's a, a wonderful history of, uh, of New York and recommended to you. Theodore Roosevelt is a part of the history of New York. I mentioned the other day that in uh, 1886, as a young man uh, just turned 28, uh, he contested and came in third for the mayorship of New York, uh, coming in behind the Democrat Abram Hewitt, the son-in-law of the Cooper Union Coopers, and Henry George, uh, the single tax, a single tax on property uh, advocate. And uh, Republican uh, voters uh, abandoned his candidacy in fear of Henry George uh, voting for Hewitt. In uh, 1895, a fusion ticket of reform Republicans and uh, anti-Tammany Democrats, independents came together in support of uh, Mayor Strong and his candidacy. And Mayor Strong uh, then in turn offered uh, to Theodore Roosevelt a position of being sanitary commissioner in New York, dealing with the trash and what the horses uh, left behind, even on the most fashionable streets. And instead, Theodore Roosevelt held out and was appointed commissioner of police. Ex officio, that made him a commissioner on the fire department as well and other uh, positions of responsibility. A member of a, a four-member board, two Republicans, two Democrats. So Theodore Roosevelt immediately, immediately elected president uh, of that uh, board. Uh, much to his frustration, uh, the uh, board was often split to two. Uh, commissioner Parker became a uh, an opponent of just about everything that Theodore Roosevelt was attempting to do in that uh, office. And Frederick Grant, the son, uh, one of the sons of Ulysses S. Grant, 
often a supporter, a Republican appointee working with Roosevelt. Uh, some wonderful books, uh, if you'd like to read further. Commissioner Roosevelt uh, and uh, another, The Island of Vice. And another whose title slipped me this morning that follows the, uh, the great heat wave of 1896 and follows the campaign of William Jennings Bryant as it begins with great steam in the West and peters out as it, it, it follows and is, is, uh, runs across the country uh, in the uh, midst of the heat wave and a rather wilted uh, William Jennings Bryan uh, uh, then loses the election in 1896. Commissioner Roosevelt playing an important role in delivering ice, opening up the uh, the fire hydrants to cool the people of uh, New York. Really a wonderful story. And, and then every now and then the subject of fiction, you may know Caleb Carr's The Alienist, a wonderfully disturbing story about a, a serial murderer in New York City and uh, Police Commissioner Roosevelt uh, playing a uh, rather fine cameo. And and uh, if you're uh, in quarantine and you've run out of your, uh, what do they say, binge watching, you might look for The Alienist, which was out in recent years on one of the uh, cable uh, stations. Theodore Roosevelt uh, in early 1897, after much lobbying by his friend, uh, 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 Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, uh, the stories of Ohio, they lobbied McKinley for an appointment, and Theodore Roosevelt was able to accept uh, the appointment of being Assistant Secretary of the Navy uh, in uh, McKinley's administration, and so felt it necessary to resign his position as police commissioner, doing so on April 17, 1897, in a letter to Mayor Strong. To the Mayor. My dear Mr. Mayor, I herewith tender you my resignation to take effect on April 19th in accordance with our understanding. I wish to take this opportunity, sir, to thank you for appointing me and to express my very deep appreciation of your attitude toward me and toward the force, the direction of which you in part entrusted uh, to, my, uh, to my care. We have been very intimately associated with your work, and I know, as all men who have been associated with you do know, the devotion with which you have given all of your time and all of your efforts to the betterment of our civic conditions and the single-mindedness with which at every crisis you have sought merely the good of the city. I have been able to work so zealously under you because you have never required of me anything but loyal service to what you conceive to be the best interest of New York City. And I well know that had I followed any other course, it would have met with instant and sharp rebuke from you. I know also the almost incredible difficulties with which you have been surrounded and the impossibility of your acting so as to please everyone. Nevertheless, I firmly believe that the people are now realizing that you have given us far and away the best administration which this city has ever had. In this department, we, as well as you, have been hampered by unwise legislation in the so-called bipartisan law under which the department itself is administered is of such absurdly foolish character that it has been impossible to achieve the results which would have been achieved had you had your hands free with reference to your appointees 
and had your appointees in turn possessed full and proper power over the force. Nevertheless, very much has been accomplished. For the first time, the police force has been administered without regard to politics and with an honest and resolute purpose to enforce the laws equitably and show favor to no man. The old system of blackmail and corruption has been almost entirely broken up. We have greatly improved the standard of discipline. We have preserved complete order and we have warred against crime and vice more effectively than ever before. The fact that we have come short in any measure is due simply to the folly of the law, which deprives us of the full measure of power over our subordinates, which could alone guarantee the best results. We have administered the civil service law in spirit and in letter, so as to show that there is not the slightest excuse for wishing to get rid of it, or for claiming that it does not produce the best possible results when honestly enforced. About two-fifths of the patrolmen have been appointed by us under the operation of the civil service law, and they make the best body of recruits that had, have ever come into the service. This is about four times the number of appointments that have ever before been made in the same period, and we have also made many more promotions. In promotions and appointments alike, we have disregarded wholly all considerations of political or religious creed. We have treated all men alike on their merits, rewarding the good and punishing the bad without reference to outside consideration. This was the course followed so long as the board had control over all promotions, and it has been followed in the promotions actually made. I have joined with Commissioner Andrews in refusing to take part in any offer to promote men or appoint them on other terms. I cannot resist expressing my appreciation for the high-mindedness, disinterestedness, courage, and fidelity to duty which Commissioner Andrews has brought to the performance of every official action. During my term of service, we have striven especially to make the police force not only the terror of the burglar, the rioter, the tough, the lawbreaker, and criminal of every kind, but also the ready ally of every movement for good. One of my pleasantest experiences has been working with all men, rich and poor, priests and laymen, Catholics and Protestants, Jews and Gentiles, who are striving to make our civic conditions better, who are striving to raise the standard of living, of morality, and of comfort among our less fortunate brethren. We have endeavored to make all men and all societies engaged in such work feel that the police were their natural allies. We have endeavored to make the average private citizen feel that the officer of the law was to be dreaded only by the lawbreaker, who was never ready to treat uh, with courtesy, and was ever ready to treat with courtesy and to befriend anyone who needed his aid. The man in the ranks, the man with the nightstick, has been quick to respond to our efforts, quick to recognize honesty of purpose in his superiors. You have in the police force a body of admirable men, brave, able, and zealous, under proper leadership. They can at any time be depended upon to do the best possible work. 
I have bitterly regretted that the law under which the force is administered is so bad that it has been impossible to make of this splendid body of men all that could be made. If the board had one responsible head with complete power and absolute singleness of purpose to do the right. Again, thanking you for having appointed me and for your treatment of me during my term of service, I am, with much gratitude and respect, very faithfully yours, Theodore Roosevelt. April 17th, 1897. Four years hence, that uh, uh, young man, not yet 40 at this time, well, he would have made his way through Cuba, and through the governorship, and on to the vice presidency uh, uh, within four years by April of 1901. We'll conclude today, and, and, and just that reading brings uh, to mind all sorts of wonderful stories about Theodore Roosevelt, the police commissioner, his midnight rambles, uh, where he would uh, head through the precincts and, and anywhere where there was a police officer derelict of duty, uh, sleeping on a park bench or sitting on a bar stool. The next morning at eight o'clock, that uh, officer was up on charges in front of the police commissioners. The, uh, uh, the uh, police uh, uh, officer, uh, Clubber Williams, uh, known by that nickname for the club that uh, uh, he uh, injusticely uh, used with injustice uh, in New York City, uh, he would become, uh, uh, he would be dismissed under Roosevelt's leadership and then in later years become the, uh, the part owner and head of the, the New York Highlanders, later the New York Yankees. Some New York history. Uh, on to the White House, April 17th, this date, 1908. Theodore Roosevelt addressed remarks to the uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma Commercial Club. Uh, picture these uh, businessmen. Nor uh, uh, Oklahoma, uh, just having uh, become our 48th state uh, during uh, Roosevelt's administration, comprised of the previous uh, Oklahoma and Indian territories, and the sad chapter of America's history under President Jackson, the removal of the southeastern Indian tribes, uh, the Cherokee and, and others to Oklahoma, and uh, a, a history with which uh, Theodore Roosevelt was, was dealing, the citizens of Oklahoma dealing, and the, the Indian in Oklahoma dealing as well. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, I think, uh, eventually to be shown as uh, quite sympathetic uh, to the cause of uh, uh, the Indian in America, and certainly at his time he saw the solution to most of the problems to be that of uh, coming together in, and uh, of the Indian uh, becoming uh, more of an American. And, uh, I know that as well. That's harshly judged uh, by history today. We'll uh, begin with these remarks, April 17th, 1908, at the White House. Gentlemen, it is a great pleasure to greet you here. I take a peculiar interest in your great state, and it is a great state and it is going to be a much greater state. I endeavor to find out what is really for your interest and then do it. I went over carefully with your representatives this question of the removal of the restrictions and came to the conclusion that substantial justice would be done to both the Indian and the white man by keeping for the Indian a homestead of 40 acres of good agricultural land and allowing him to alienate the remainder. I do not think it is to his advantage or to yours that there should be large tracts of non-taxable and non-improved land. I will help you to see that you get your rights. 
Now I want you to help me see that the Indian gets his rights. I will help you in any legitimate way, and I will do my best to try to see that the Indian is not kept as an obstruction to the growth of the state. But you know as well as I do that there are plenty of Indians who are not yet as well able to take care of themselves as the rest of you extremely able gentlemen from Oklahoma. You cannot afford in your own interest to do less justice to the Indian, uh, to do less than justice to the Indian, and I want each of you to make it your work to see that your own state courts, your state officials, carefully preserve the rights of the Indian, and that you try to give him the chance to which he is entitled. I will do all I can to secure him that chance. After all, gentlemen, he is the oldest American of all of us. So give him a fair show. Give him a chance. I have no sympathy with that maudlin sentimentalism about the Indian, which is most intense the farther you get away from where the Indian is. All I want is that you shall not only give to the very able, very advanced Indian the same show that you give the white man, but that the Indian who needs to be brought along for a decade or two needs to be educated and trained until he can stand entirely on his own feet shall have your help. I, uh, I pause to take in the uh, seriousness and the implications of looking at our history and and uh, understanding, coming to grips with uh, uh, what was uh, uh, done to uh, the North American native, uh, what was done by those natives uh, uh, to uh, settlers and pioneers and to one another. The, uh, the truth is uh, in a set of details and circumstances that are quite difficult and challenging. And I hope that here in Medora, uh, we answer the call in uh, remaining true to history and looking at the hard parts just as intently and honestly as we look at those wonderful moments when all of us are united in agreement that something right was done. Theodore Roosevelt elsewhere writes that there was a great deal of wrong done on all sides. This, I think, in his Winning of the West when he looks at the treatment of the Native American in the southeastern United States. But as well, uh, the uh, the people of Georgia and that region knew just as well the fierceness of the battle, uh, the battles that were engaged uh, in our time of uh, colonial uh, time and, and settlement afterwards. So it's April 17th, 2020. I hope that you'll go out and live the strenuous life, get a bit of fresh air. We're, we're enjoying a wonderful bit of uh, spring warmth here in the Badlands and summer will come and we'll be here in Medora, ready to uh, help you and your family to uh, enjoy themselves, to get outdoors, to soak up the, the history that's evident all about us. Tomorrow is Saturday, April 18th. Uh, we will commemorate the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Great in its immensity, horrible in its destruction and death. The point at which the Roosevelt administration and the War Department rose to the challenge and uh, during which the municipal government, uh, uh, fraught with uh, corruption, uh, showed itself unequal to the task. So what I'm likely to do is take some uh, documents from uh, a previous visit to San Francisco in 1903 during Theodore Roosevelt's Great Western Tour, and also a document from May of 1908, the federal response to, uh, to the tragedy. 
and then we'll have Sunday off. Enjoy Sunday uh, with your family and friends. We'll return to you on Monday then. That'll be uh, April 20th. And I'll post here uh, a, a full uh, a schedule of programs for next week during these 26 days with the 26th president. Thank you for being here. Uh, you've been kind to add some comments and questions. I'll address some of those. And, and uh, first, uh, this one at the end here for uh, my dear friend, Joyce Crabseth. She read elsewhere, an, an author that said that Theodore Roosevelt was rather uncomfortable in his retirement. And I think that implies uncomfortable with the circumstance of being expected to be a rudimentary and uh, just to sit about and read and rock on the, on the porch and that sort of thing. So it's uh, interesting to see that in his retirement, uh, something that was summed up by uh, Edmund Morris so very well in his final uh, uh, of the uh, trilogy on Theodore Roosevelt, this one called The Colonel. From that retirement from the White House, uh, well, it was a retirement that uh, began uh, quickly with editing Outlook magazine and with uh, undertaking the trip to uh, British East Africa, the great hunting safari on behalf of uh, the Smithsonian. Edmund Morris himself with the uh, host Brian Lamb on Book TV on C-SPAN. Uh, put that on your uh, uh, television or computer screen if you've run out of interesting things to watch. Uh, C-SPAN's Book TV, a wonderful program. Edmund Morris interviewed by Brian Lamb at the publication of The Colonel. And he said uh, to Brian Lamb, Mr. Lamb, all in all, I'm rather relieved that Theodore Roosevelt died when he was 60. For if he had lived any longer, it would have cost me another decade as his biographer. Theodore Roosevelt lived for 60 years. He said he would rather wear out than rust out. So uh, there's many more stories to tell from Theodore Roosevelt here at Teddy Talks. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow, Saturday. Thanks for being along for the ride. Goodbye and good luck.